At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and C. Grasso. Coming up on Fast, a fact-check fight. Trump takes on Twitter after the social media giant slaps warnings on two of his tweets. We'll break down the big risks in this brewing battle. Plus, shares of Moderna tumbling again today. What we just learned about insider selling that is raising more eyebrows. And Box getting a pop in the after-hour session on earnings. We'll break down all the big headlines from the quarter. But we start off with the great sector rotation. Some past underperformers are catching a big bid. Check out these moves over the past week. The XLF Financials ETF up 9%. XLI Industrials up 8%. XLB Materials up 3%. On the flip side, past outperformers like tech and healthcare, they're falling by the wayside, underperforming the broader markets, with the XLK ETF down 1% since last Wednesday. XLV Healthcare is flat. XLC Communications up 1%. So is this rotation temporary? Or will this be the new leadership going forward? Guy Dami, I'll start with you. Hi, Mel. Hi, Guy. Well, just about everything is temporary, if you think about it, except luggage in the great words of Eddie Murphy. But I digress. I think it can continue. I absolutely think the banks can continue here. And kudos to Karen, who's been talking about the banks. And kudos to both Tim and Steve, who've been steadfast saying the pain trade is going to continue to be higher in the broader market. What we have said is banks should be trading higher. And I think, for example, J.P. Morgan, which we've outlined, uh, the metrics that I use at a $62 tangible book, you put a 1.85 multiple on that, which is reasonable for them. And you're talking about $115 stock. So I absolutely think there's another 10 to 15 percent on the upside. What surprises me is the fact that the S&P 500 in the wake of this or in the midst of this rotation continues to grind higher. That, to me, is a bit of a disconnect. But the banks do make sense. We have uh, gone above 3,000 Grasso, held there. Uh, we've, we failed to hold there yesterday. So what do you make of, of the move so far this week? So it, when Guy and I pointed out that 50% retracement from the all-time highs to that 2,200, let's call it low, in the S&P, and now we're at that 618, and then uh, above that, you're looking, honing in on old highs again. So you have to look at the 29.34 level in the S&P. That's your support. Then above that, you get to 31.09. If we shoot to 31.09, it's all but a given that we're going to make new highs in this marketplace. The problem is, for me, what is the catalyst for new highs? So I think you're going to have an overreach as we did to the downside. You'll have it to the upside. But earnings aren't going to be there. You might get a resurgence in Corona. Uh, airlines are not going to be uh, making money hand over fist. Restaurants aren't going to be making money hand over fist. So what's the reason? So I think we'll overshoot. I think once you start to see maybe a little bit of Corona resurgence, we'll settle back in. Everyone I speak to is looking at the 3,000 level in the S&P. Mm-hmm. That is your new bull bear 
barometer right now uh, in the overall market. So all those risk factors for the overall market seem like ginormous risk factors, if I can use a technical term. For banks specifically, Karen, I mean, we're talking about sort of the lifeblood of the economy here in banks. And if we are going to be facing these downside risks, banks face them in a more outsized way. They do. And I think that's why they're here. Right. If you look at this, they, I mean, as strong as this recovery has been, I mean, J.P. Morgan's up, I think, 20 percent in two weeks. It's still dramatically underperformed the market at large. So I've thought for a long time that either the market can't continue to go up without banks going up or they have to converge somehow. Either everything goes up or they come closer together. So that's uh, starting to happen. I think that, um, you know, everyone is very optimistic about future earnings now. We don't we completely ignore whatever earnings come out and just want to hear how is how is the reopening going or what are you seeing in the future? And actually, if we listen to Jamie Dimon and Brian Moynihan, both at absolutely the center of the economy, they seem relatively optimistic about their business. So I'm hanging on to banks. I don't know. Um, I, I am concerned that the rally has come too far too fast, but I feel also the game's a little rigged with the Fed there and potentially additional stimulus that, you know, they sort of have put a floor under here. All right. Um, Boeing shares are moving higher in the after-hour session. We've got some breaking news in that company. Phil LeBeau's got the details. Phil. Melissa, here's why shares are moving higher. Boeing has officially restarted 737 MAX production at its plant in Renton, Washington. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to see a new plane coming out of that plant in the next couple of days. It takes a while for the system to completely wake up. And they said uh, within the last month that they were waking up the assembly line, so to speak. Well, now they have officially begun production at that plant in Renton, Washington. And you'll see the first ones roll out of there sometime over the next couple of months. We don't have timing on when that first one will be. But guys, this is the beginning of Boeing starting on the 737 MAX, slowly bringing back production. And remember, when it does come back and once they get it recertified, if they can get it recertified by the end of the summer, you will not see massive increase in production. It's going to be a gradual ramp up in production. But nonetheless, this is an important milestone for Boeing as the MAX production has resumed in Renton, Washington. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Uh, in Chicago for us, Boeing shares up 3% now. Uh, Tim, does that make sense to you that, that we should see such a pop in shares of Boeing when the plane isn't even recertified yet? So they, they make these plans at a very slow pace and, and they go nowhere. Yeah, well, who's going to buy them? Um, but yes, actually, we should see this pop. Uh, because if we remember that the, the cutting of production was a big part of, of where we really saw uh, the Boeing share story go off the cliff. And, and part of that was just the cost attached to re-getting, uh, to restarting production. Um, ultimately, uh, June was talked about. Uh, I, you know, this is actually uh, pretty amazing that we're beginning production. Now, remember, in the last two weeks, we've had conversations between Boeing and folks like Southwest, who are in a very good position uh, financially relative to their peers, uh, to defer airplanes, but also say we will be adding some and we will be deciding and we are talking with Boeing. We're talking with them about damages, but we will be buying these planes. So this is about that normalizing effect. I think this is a huge moment for Boeing. I'm long the stock, so take that with what you want. Um, but I, I, I do think this is exactly what we wanted to see. I, I, I don't think uh, anyone is expecting uh, demand in, in their order book to be what it was. I think we actually have to figure out what the order book actually is. Um, but I think we've gotten past the point where we are worried uh, about their balance sheet, at least today, uh, and now focusing on the issues that were the issues before COVID-19. And it really is about ultimately 
getting that recertification. Uh, if that does happen in July and, and Boeing in this time has changed their tune dramatically, become very penitent and, and uh, uh, found religion, so to speak, in terms of what they need to say outwardly to the public mm -hmm. to mollify the FAA, even if you know there's other things that have to be done on the software. Stock is climbing. It's up 4.3 percent. Guy Dami, um, is this the I mean, you've got not only its own issues, which it seems to be sort of resolving at this point or on, on the path towards resolving. But you also have Boeing as a as a pandemic reopening sort of trade because of the airline uh, boost that it could see. So is, is this the time to be in this stock? Yeah. No, well, I mean, good for Tim, by the way. And yeah, RBC actually, I think, initiated this stock on May 20th with $164 price target. So that was well-timed as well. I, you know, I think, and we pointed out on that day, something that Tim had been saying, there come, the market had been completely discounting Boeing's defense business. And I think now it's being taken into consideration. Um, you know, I see what's going on here clearly, and people are trying to get ahead of what they appear to be, you know, let's get ahead of whatever good news is coming. And if it's bad news, We'll have the uh, ability to turn on a dime. We'll see if that plays itself out. 180 was the level, if you recall, the stock went from basically uh, 80 to 180 in a straight line in, early, in March to early uh, April. I think that's the level you're looking for. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a good sound bite, but I don't think they're out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, in my opinion. All right. We'll keep track of the stock, which is up 4.6 percent right now. Back to the markets. Our next guest has been playing this great rotation by trimming tech, buying banks. Let's bring in Emily Rowland. She's a, a co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock. Emily, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. How do you think about the overall markets in, in terms of this great rotation? I mean, are, are we going to see new highs in the S&P 500? Well, this sign of the broadening market is certainly a good one uh, in terms of uh, forward-looking um, expectations here. And one of the things that we think is is really been critical here is this huge uh, whipsaw in terms of sentiment. Um, you've got in retail investors that have just been sitting on the sidelines, just hoarding cash. Over a trillion dollars has gone into money market funds year to date. And investors are looking to get that cash off the sidelines and they're looking at the areas that have been beaten up on a relative basis. And you look at technology, which we still like, um, that's up 6% year to date. And then you look at areas like financials, which before this pop were down over 25%. So we're not totally sold a long-term narrative for these more classically cyclical sectors, but we would play the tactical balance right now. So in terms of the classically cyclical sectors, Emily, I mean, do you not like industrials, for instance? I mean, is, is banks the cyclical sector that you single out for specific reasons versus others? No, I about industrials and financials as cyclical sectors, just, you know, classically speaking, those that are more tied to the economic cycle. In order for that long-term story to play out, we'd like to see some more inflation, We'd like to see rates going higher. And that really is not our base case for at least the next couple of years here. But there's been a huge dispersion in performance. Um, and we think it makes sense to, to take some of those gains um, out of, out of you know, areas like technology, fixed income side, areas like treasuries. I mean, let's think about it. There's really only been one trade this year, tech and treasuries. And that's been great. And congratulations for all the, the, the folks that embrace those trades. Um, but the idea here is now what's next. And we've got a, a long way to go in terms of 
performance recovering in areas like industrials and financials. And we think it does make sense to lean in at this point. You talked about the money sitting on the sidelines uh, in the accounts of retail investors, Emily. And I'm, I'm wondering if um, during this time and in the post-pandemic time when, when that is upon us, if you think about that cash differently, if people see the shockwaves rippling through, they see, you know, their family member losing their job, they are getting a pay cut, and maybe that cash stays on the sidelines, does that change your outlook for the overall markets? You know, the, the real challenge we see with the cash on the sidelines for, for individuals is the fact that the Fed has now pushed the short end of the curve basically down to zero. So that becomes, you know, a problem for savers. Um, and we think that's one of the most um, challenging, um, you know, kind of behavioral finance elements today is to get investors to at least go out on the curve a bit. Um, so, yes, I think you're right. The savings rate could move higher, which could, could dampen consumer spending, which we know is absolutely critical to this economic recovery. But I think the most pressing, pressing issue here from an investment standpoint is for those folks to look areas to try to generate some yield within a cross-asset portfolio. All right, Emily, thanks so much for your time. We do appreciate it. Emily Rowland of John Hancock, Karen Feinerman. Does it matter to you that there's uh, trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines in the part of retail investors? I mean, I guess I'd like to see it specifically in the stocks that I own, but I also <laughs> wonder if that money floods into the market, if, if that's a sign of a top, right? I don't really know. Um, but I do agree with her. I mean, I do have banks. I do have some uh, industrials that are starting to work, names like URI or FedEx. I bought some FedEx mm -hmm. recently. Um, I think those have a ways to go. I don't know that it's a straight line, though, but that's how I'm positioned. The sector we hadn't mentioned, which is also catching a bid in this rotation, is retail. We got a bunch of retail earnings out tomorrow. XRT is up more than 6% in just two days, Tim. Yeah, and I think if you look at over the, this, this rotation that we're talking about for retail and for banks and, and for industrials, this is not two days, this is not three days, this is two weeks. And I think we just need to be clear about this. You know, you, you've actually had the S&P up. 8% in eight days. But during that time, um, you've actually seen this outperformance by uh, the groups that I think were, were left for dead and there was really very little visibility into where their business was going. I think on the retail side, um, as we know, the XRT is an ETF that is uh, a, it's a, it contains a, much, a lot of the much smaller, the smaller index uh, players. And I think if you look at some of the big box and if you look at some of the hard lines and if you look at some of the specialty retailers and apparel, um, some of these were so beaten up. Obviously, there's the bottom of the barrel, which were things like, with all due respect, L Brands and whatnot, and Macy's, we've talked about them. But, but you know, look at Dick's Sporting Goods. Look at some of these uh, other places, you know, where, where you had some expectation that these guys were going to be dead with the consumer, and, and they're proving that they're not. And in fact, they're, they're back up near highs. So again, this is not a two-day rotation. This is a two-week rotation where banks have outperformed, but you've also seen then the leadership. Walmart's down 8% during that same two-week period. And I think you're going to continue to see that trend. Um, you know, there's one economic release that I am very interested in, uh, and that is coming out on Friday, and that's personal income, Guy. And, and I say this because I think there are, in, in, there are a number of articles in Bloomberg, as well as the Wall Street Journal, I believe, over the weekend about pay cuts and how people, workers may not be uh, losing their jobs, but for many uh, workers out there, they are asking, they're being asked by their companies to share the pain and take some pay cuts. And that is going to show up eventually in personal income data, not right away, but maybe in this Friday's release, maybe in the following month's release. And you got to wonder how that impacts 
consumer discretionary spending? I think it absolutely has to impact it, to your point, and it's all over the country. And you can understand what's going on. But when you're talking about an economy in the United States, which is 73 percent driven by people buying things at a certain point, it matters. So, you know, I see what's happening with the broader market. I totally get it. Optimism wins, which is fantastic. But, you know, again, when you look at this thing in the aggregate there, you know, north of 35 million people unemployed. You're talking about the pay cuts that are going on. It's very hard to imagine us getting back to where we were in December as quickly as the market seems to think. That's what gives me um, pause, and that's why I'm trying to be somewhat pragmatic. With that said, optimism is ruling the day right now, and, you know, it's really hard to argue with that. Yep. Coming up, shares of Box getting a pop after reporting results. We'll break down the latest numbers from the cloud company. And later, Trump takes fresh aim at Twitter. We will break down the big risks in this brewing battle. Fast Money's back in two. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Box. Shares of the cloud name surging higher after hours. Josh Lipton has all the details. Josh. So, Melissa, yeah, Box uh, reporting beating on both the top and bottom line. Billings also came in better expected at 128 million. As for the forecast, Q2 EPS uh, better than expected. Revenue basically in line. For the year, though, the EPS forecast, that was nicely above consensus. In terms of the revenue forecast for the year, solid uh, relative to expectations. Remember, this stock had surged about 130% uh, since that March low heading into the print. Did get the chance to chat briefly with uh, CEO Aaron Levy. I asked him, how is this work-from-home trend going to benefit his company? Um, He told me that they are seeing healthy expansion in the enterprise segment. Enterprises, he says, need new secure ways now to access and collaborate on content in the cloud. His argument is Box is there to provide that for them. 40 deals in the quarter, he said, over $100,000. Did point out some challenges as well, though, in the quarter. Point out softness in the SMB segment and some softness in the consulting business, too. That, he said, did impact the top line. There was for that bottom line beat. What drove that? What leverage was he pulling? Aaron Levy saying Box is driving, he says, stronger efficiency across the business. Way better cost discipline now, he says, at his company. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh. Thank you, Josh Lipton. Uh, Box shares up 2.5%. See Grasso, how do you trade this? So when you look at these names, like these infrastructure software names, it's up about 18%, I believe, year to date. It's, it's about a $3 billion market cap. On the flip side of that, you get a $70 billion name that's up 34% in ServiceNow. So Bill McDermott went from SAP to ServiceNow. Who knows, maybe ServiceNow gobbles up a company like Box in the future. I would expect Box to be the beta play, but it's not. The companies that people are investing in have multiple strategies, diversified, and are larger cap names in this environment. I would stay with the service now. Would you rather myself there against Box? You, you love self would you rathering. Um, see, uh, Tim, yes. go, go ahead, Tim. I know you want to say something. 
I, I just wish I could do that as effectively as Steve does it. It's awesome. So, so um, I would be worried about the small business, small, medium-sized business, SMB. I mean, this, is, this to me is core to their business. I, I realize that, that enterprise so far has actually proven to be uh, very resilient for reasons we all know what's going on. Um, but but it, it, those transactions and, and boasting of those transactions and the size of those transactions, that's really where, where those businesses live. So if they're seeing some caution there and they've expressed that, and I think that's appropriate given the environment, that's not something I think you need to chase. Yeah, I mean, exposure to small, medium business, Karen, seems like um, a real risk in this environment. Yeah, it does. I mean, I guess you have to be critical to their business, right? And then, um, and then there's a, there's a space. But you know, one thing that's interesting um, about Box, they do have they did have guidance. You know, we talk about uh, companies not giving guidance, and when you have a SaaS business, you just you have a somewhat better sense of what your revenues are going to be. So um, it's not surprised they give guidance, and um, obviously it was decent. So that's a nice move for for Box. I don't own it. Too expensive, but good for them. Breaking news here. Uh, some new sanctions out of Washington. Kayla Tausch has got the latest. Kayla. Melissa, on Capitol Hill, the House is voting by proxy right now, uh, which means essentially that some members can vote on behalf of other members who want to be teleworking. And they have just secured enough votes to pass a bill that has already been passed in the Senate that would put sanctions on Chinese officials for human rights violations of Muslim minorities that have been encamped uh, in China for several years at this point. Uh, this bill would then go to the president's desk once, th once this House vote is final. And Melissa, it just adds to this ramping up of anti-China actions for a variety uh, of issues. The president has been presented with uh, policy options on other sanctions on Chinese officials uh, related to uh, its national security law that it is seeking to impose on Hong Kong to crack down on demonstrations there. So certainly this is just adding to the myriad of anti-China sentiment here in Washington uh, on both sides of the aisle. And certainly this is uh, a symbolic move on one hand, but also uh, mm -hmm. potentially could result in uh, some retaliation by China. Melissa. Kayla, is this the announcement that President Trump teased uh, the other day when you said that the, the response uh, to the security law would be announced by the end of the week? Or is this separate? No. This is separate. This mm -hmm. is an action that lawmakers on Capitol Hill are taking specifically to hit China for these human rights abuses. What the president is planning to announce, if he makes a decision to do so, uh, would specifically target Beijing in response to that Hong Kong uh, national security law that it sought to impose. Earlier today, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo certified to Congress that Hong Kong has not uh, Hong Kong has lost its authority. It is no longer uh, a one country, two systems uh, type special territory. That could have ramifications for Hong Kong's special economic treatment, specifically with regard to uh, the absence of tariffs on Hong Kong. So it's that specific national security mm -hmm. law that could result in new action by the administration by the end of this week. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche, keep you on top of all this for us. Uh, Guy Dami, I go to you. We've been talking about these tensions. You specifically had raised them when they were just starting to emerge here. And, and this appears to be one in a series of actions that we don't even know. I mean, we don't even know the extent of it quite yet, because that announcement, as Kayla had mentioned, in terms of retaliation specifically for the national security law, we don't know that yet. 
And here we are, Guy. And of all the things that give me concern and have given me pause, I mean, this has been the top of the list. Yet when I first started talking about this, the S&P 500 is probably up you know, 150 handles since. So clearly, for whatever reason, the broader market doesn't seem to care. Again, I'm not certain why. I think this is a big deal. I ab- absolutely think President Trump views this move in the broader market as sort of uh, bullets to play with in terms of the rhetoric with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to use them. And you know what? Maybe he should. This is not a political statement, but there are ramifications for that. And I think they'll manifest themselves in the stock market. My sense is any announcement that will be made will be made probably Friday after the close. So the market has a weekend to think about it. But again, this rhetoric is not going away. It's only going to intensify. And at a certain point, I think the market will care. We have uh, offshore yuan uh, hit a record low against the U.S. dollar in the after-hour session. At an hour after-hour session, I should be clear, Tim. And it does seem to be. It does seem that businesses over there are falling in line with Beijing. We had Li Ka-shing, who is a, a very well-known Hong right. Kong businessman effectively backing the national security law today. I mean, they, there was an advertisement poster with him, his smiling face there. And then we also have news, and I'm not sure this is related, but it does seem to be related, that um, NetEase as well as JD will be listing secondaries in the Hong Kong market. Um, so they're, they're also saying, you know what, we are Chinese companies and, and we are going to stick by here. The- they are national champion companies. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to do what they, they need to do to, to stay loyal here. And, and frankly, uh, whether it's listing in Hong Kong or whether it's listing in, in, in Beijing and the local exchanges, I mean, there, there are options. There is liquidity there and there is a government that will support them as well. Um, so it, it, rule of law in Hong Kong uh, is critical and I think it's critical as a global issue. And this gets back to uh, is, the, is the U.S. just the only player here uh, that will be putting pressure on China? I doubt it. Um, and that, that, that elevates Trump on some level. So um, the common enemy is, is a very important political tool here. Uh, and I think, real or not, and I think we would all argue, and both sides of the, of the aisle are arguing, uh, that China is very much uh, a target. And therefore, that's going to play well politically. Uh, and therefore, as Guy said, though, from the market's perspective, um, maybe with markets having done what they've done, we've seen this administration say, you know what, we, we're, we're keeping an eye on the stock market, but we're certainly... Uh, comfortable with the bolts we have the fire here, which is, I know, Guy's term. I'll, I'll take that as well. All right. We got another earnings alert here on Toll Brothers. The stock is up 9% in the after-hour session. Let's get to Diana Olick with all the details. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, Toll had a really nice beat in the second quarter, uh, much more than expected. But what was really interesting in this report is how Doug Yearly, the CEO, described the quarter as basically bifurcated. They came in very strong in the beginning with signed contracts way up 43 percent. And then the second half of the quarter, of course, when the COVID hit, down 69 percent. But then he talked about what he's seen in the last three weeks. And I think that's really what's moving the stock. He said that just since the last three weeks of May, they had orders down 37 percent, but now up 13%. And he added web traffic has also steadily improved from the lows we experienced in mid-March and has returned to the same strong activity we enjoyed pre-COVID-19 in February. Then he added these early trends suggest the housing market may be more resilient than anticipated just two months ago. And that's what we saw in the new home sales numbers that were out yesterday. They were expected to drop 22% in April month to month, and they were actually up barely 1%, but up in the positive as high 
demand for housing and low supply on the existing home side is pushing more buyers to the builders. Now, Toll, of course, is a luxury home builder, but their price, their average sale price in Q2 came down pretty dramatically over 10 percent. So you can see some price concessions there and that demand coming in for more housing. Part of it may be that urban flight of people wanting to get out. They've been at home too long. We all know that. And they want to get out to the suburbs, more space, a backyard, a home office, all of those things benefiting the builders and clearly benefiting toll. Melissa. All right, Diana. Thank you, Diana. Olek, we also know that mortgage applications up for six straight weeks at this point. So financing is out there also for this consumer, Steve Gross. So you have been in the home builders. Are you still? I am not in the home builders right now and toll is in those expensive markets. So it's in those, in those markets that actually had more severe shutdowns. Washington State, uh, California, the upper income levels in California, San Fran for one of them, um, Philly, Pennsylvania. So no matter how you slice it, there was tremendous headwinds for, for Toll Brothers. But, a, but Toll Brothers, even though they cut in half their year-to-date loss, D.R. Horton has really, really performed. It's up 11% year-to-date. What else is up 11% year-to-date? A name that Guy talks about all the time, Home Depot. Lowe's is up 6%. So you can go a different way on the home builders. But let's remember, D.R. Horton, why did they perform? Because they build spec homes. So what's look, looked upon as a negative is now a positive because they actually have product to sell. I would stay in D.R. Horton. I would sell this pop in toll. It was an overpositioning pop as far as I can tell. All right. Coming up, the headline that sent one-time biotech darling Moderna sinking again today. We'll find out if it's enough to make one big bull change his mind. Plus, Tesla's reality check, what the company just did, that is a true sign of the times. We have the details when Fast Money returns. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Drug maker Moderna raising a few eyebrows again today. Sad news reporting company executives sold $89 million worth of shares since the start of the year. The sales were pre-planned, so legal. But they come as the company looks to raise more than a billion dollars through a secondary stock offering. Moderna shares are now down 35 percent since last Monday's closing price when the company announced positive phase one clinical trials of a potential coronavirus vaccine. Our next guest uh, reiterated an overweight rating on the stock with a $100 price target. Let's bring in Piper Sandler, senior biotech analyst Ted Tenthoff. Ted, great to have you with us. Thanks, Melissa. Um, would you concede that there's an optics problem at Moderna in terms of uh, the preliminary phase one data being released, the companies then uh, rushing to, to sell a secondary, and then now this news about all these uh, pre-planned sales? 
Well, actually, in the biotech space, companies often raise money on the heels of positive data. And if you think about it, this is uh, money that's being raised to be able to manufacture upwards of a billion uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. So they, the company certainly needs the money. The timing of the um, insider sales is uh, is not optimal. Um, but as you mentioned in, in the opening comments, um, these are very strictly controlled for C-level executives. Um, so I think it's an optics issue, um, but not more than that. Is there any uh, concern in your mind that the SEC could have grounds to investigate? Because even though, as we understand, um, in, in speaking to Jacob Frankel, a former SEC attorney, even though these sales were pre-planned and legal, the SEC could still have grounds to, to investigate. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't have a comment on, on what the SEC is going to do. They obviously do a great job monitoring all different kinds of trades that occur. So, you know, it's going to be up, up to them if they decide to look into into these uh, insider stock sales. OK, let's talk about uh, the stock itself and your overweight rating on it. Uh, you see the stock virtually doubling over the next 12 months, according to your call here. So in terms of the 10 billion um $10 billion in revenue, 1 billion doses a year. So that's $10 a dose. I'm wondering who, who pays for this, Ted? I mean, we're trying to understand for vaccines like this, you know, when there's such pressure on the part of governments to say this is a humanitarian cause at this point, give us the vaccines, who will pay for that? Yeah, so, you know, clearly um, government will pay for this. Also, I believe insurers will pay for this. If you think about the cost, of a single vaccine versus what it, it costs for a patient to go into the hospital with severe respiratory distress and go on a ventilator for months. It's, it's vaccinations, one of the most cost beneficial areas of investment. And actually, when you think about $10 a vaccine, that's about the price of a flu vaccine every year. So tell me, Melissa, wouldn't you pay $10 for a uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine at this point for the ability to go back to life? And uh, one one investor really put it to me this way. He said, yes, how much has SARS-CoV-2, how much has the COVID pandemic cost the U.S. economy? I mean, $5 trillion at least in mm-hmm. um, stimulus. I have to imagine it's at least double that. So even if it was $100 billion, you know, that's a drop in the bucket in terms of what this protective vaccine, this mm-hmm. protective product could do in terms of actually uh, revitalizing and protecting the uh, American economy and the American people. How much is a COVID vaccine? How much of that is in your model in terms of what it's worth to the stock? I mean, as I understand it, Moderna has never brought a product across the finish line, and it has six platforms that have uh, either failed or have been dropped. Well, I I think that might not be a a fair characterization. Um, We believe that messenger RNA, which is the technology behind this, is ideally suited for vaccines. And again, keep in mind, nobody's really named a price yet for this vaccine. We're just assuming, let's say it's $10 a share. They entered into a contract with Lonza to be able to produce a billion a year. I'm just trying to show what the potential could be. Um, it may actually end up costing more than that. And again, I think the value that a product like that would bring. And this is really, you know, we put a one, one and a half times multiple on those revenues, and that's about 15 billion or a little less than half of the total value of our 36 plus billion dollar enterprise value for our $100 price target. Um, Moderna's working on other vaccines, including for very serious diseases like cytomegalovirus. RSV, Zika, other diseases as well. 
Um, and they also, this technology could be ideally suited for orphan diseases mm-hmm. where the RNA can actually be used to produce the missing protein or enzyme. We think that's a really exciting uh, opportunity for this company a little bit beyond COVID-19. Right. Karen's got a question for you, Ted. Hi, Karen. Yeah, thanks for being on, Ted. Um, when you think about the revenue for the vaccine, how do you think about the competition, right? You've got some of the very deepest pockets in the world um, trying to get to the same place. Yeah, great question. And, you know, for starters, keep in mind, you know, first really does matter here, because if you think about it, all of us who have not been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 have zero antibodies. That's why this vac- that's why this disease has been so disruptive and so deadly, frankly. So really just inching up the immunity to any level provides protection. And what the company reported in the NIH, uh, the NIH reported really from their study that the lowest doses of this vaccine, 25 micrograms, gets to serum levels that are um, that of a patient recovering from COVID-19 and 100 micrograms gets even higher. So, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. Frankly, a billion doses when you have to get two vaccinations each, that's 500 million vaccines. We're going to need everybody to produce as much vaccine as possible to really not just protect the United States, but protect our European allies and the rest of the world. So, you know, personally, I think we should be cheering for all of these companies to uh, succeed. Ted, great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. Ted Tenthoff of uh, Piper Sandler. Uh, We've been collectively skeptical of this stock uh, for mainly the optics reasons, but also because the data is, is preliminary at this point. Guy, have you changed your mind? Well, now it's at a point where it becomes a little bit of a lottery ticket. So have I changed my mind only in so much as the stock has gone lower? One thing I want to say quickly, listen, companies can do what they want. If they think it's the right time to price the secondary, who am I to argue? My point wasn't so much the secondary. It's their excuse as to why they did it. They said they were doing that secondary to raise $1.25 billion for manufacturing and distribution of the vaccine. You only do that if the vaccine was successful. And if the vaccine was successful, the stock would be trading $100, which is a much better level to do a secondary. So to me, it's not so much the secondary. It's the somewhat um, nebulous reason as to they gave why they did it. All right. Coming up, President Trump threatening to crack down on the social media app he seems to be so fond of what it could mean for Twitter and the rest of the industry. And later, we're counting down to earnings from Salesforce. Why one trader says this cloud name is floating higher. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. President Trump taking issue with his favorite mode of communication, Twitter. Julia Borson's got the details. Hi, Julia. Well, Melissa, a conflict between the president and Twitter all started when, for the first time, Twitter flagged two of the president's tweets as potentially misleading. Now, the president claiming that mail-in ballots would be, quote, substantially fraudulent, which draws an alert from Twitter saying, get the facts about mail-in ballots, which directs users to a curated page with more information about these claims. Now, Twitter telling CNBC, quote, these tweets contain potentially misleading information about voting processes and have been labeled to provide a additional context around mail-in ballots. This decision is in line with the approach we shared earlier this month. Trump responding to this by threatening to shut down social media platforms for being biased and silencing conservative voices. He tweeted, quote, Twitter has now shown that everything we have been saying about them and their compatriots is correct. Big action to follow. Trump also tweeting that social media companies should clean up their act. 
Twitter shares did end the day down nearly 3%. Back over to you, Melissa. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Uh, should we be concerned about that, quote-unquote, big action to follow, Grasso? Uh, yeah, whenever, whenever the president says something like that, you have to be wary of it. But when you look at it through it, first of all, well, just, just take that example in Twitter. Now we're all going to start to think about the links that they sent. So we're going to argue over whether those are real or not real. So I think you have to look at this with, with how, how the other companies have played it. So I'm currently in Snap. Snap is up basically 4% year to date. Snap said they will fact check. Facebook said they will not. They're not touching it. And Twitter basically said months ago that they weren't going to accept political ads. So I think the way to play this for me, obviously, Facebook has been the outstanding performer up 11% year to date. That's the one that garners the most attention. That's the one that gets the most money. I would worry about the, the uh, political angle to this, but I would play Snap, buy Facebook for long term, play Snap for the bigger move off this bottom. And Twitter, I think they're going to be in the bullseye for a political angle. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of this fight going into the election, my opinion. All right. Coming up, Tesla. Cutting prices in two key markets, but the stock held strong today. Fast Money friend Gene Munzer joins us on the other side of the break. And later, options traders say the clouds are clearing around Salesforce gains. We'll bring you that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook holding its annual shareholder meeting today. CEO Mark Zuckerberg just spoke with Andrew Ross Sorkin. He discussed Facebook's plan for remote workforce and how it will onboard new talent virtually. Take a listen. One of the big challenges with, uh, with remote work that we're all going to have to work through is that is the feeling of kind of building social bonds, building culture um, and creativity together. Um, people are going to need to feel like they have the same opportunities to do their best work remotely in addition to being in the office. And they're going to need to feel like it's not going to disadvantage their career to work remotely. And those are things that we're going to have to be very intentional. I think that there are a lot of open questions on exactly how to do this, but this is part of the reason why we're taking a measured approach and rolling this out over, um, over the coming years, um, starting with people who are experienced, who are, who are high performing at the company, um, in order to set that tone that that good kind of key leaders and, and folks that a lot of people want to be like are, are going to be moving to be remote. I think that that'll set the tone. You can watch the entire interview, including Mark Zuckerberg's response to Twitter fact-checking. That's tomorrow starting at 6 a.m. Meantime, Andrew Ross Sorkin joins us by phone. Andrew, how, how hey is this? Uh, hey there. Good to speak with you. Thanks for joining fast. Uh, in terms of his reaction, I know you, you want to unveil the soundbite tomorrow in the part of the interview about the president. But what sort of tone did he strike in, in terms of speaking about the president's threat of a, quote unquote, big action to come? You know, I, I think he, he's tried to be as measured as anybody in this whole process. And I think unlike Twitter has clearly taken uh, a, a different stance, which is that when it comes to uh, political speech, or at least what he would describe as political speech, uh, that he doesn't think that uh, that he or Facebook that that is should be in the business of uh, of regulating it, if you will. Um, obviously, the president also agrees with him, but there are others like Jack Dorsey at Twitter who have a very different view. Um, I'll, I'll I'll let the viewers uh, see what Mark has to say about all this tomorrow. But it was it was very interesting to 
to contrast and compare the different approaches that they're all taking, as well as even the different approaches they're taking to, to work. As you know, Jack Dorsey also moving to a work-from-home remote-for-everybody approach. And how does that work relative to, to a, a sort of quasi-office plus work-from-home work remote-first, however you want to describe uh, the, these new virtual uh, ways we're all trying to work together? Well, working from home for Facebook, will that help them save money, Andrew? I mean, I, because they're adjusting salaries according to where you decide to work from. So if I move to I, the heart I, of Ohio, I, I as to Silicon Valley. Right. I, think, I don't think that's actually what's driving it. Mm-hmm. I think what's driving it is you know, they need to hire something on the order of 10,000 engineers in the next year. And I think that their ability to be able to recruit people who historically didn't want to go live in Silicon Valley or live in some of these other expensive areas or stay closer to their family or work in cohorts, if you will. I think that's what's really driving this. I also think, and he talked about it, this idea of trying to create a more diverse workforce, that if you can actually find people in different parts of the country, um, you will actually create a more diverse workforce. So I think that's more than anything, more, more than the price. And I know everybody will look at the numbers, but I do think he's going to end up having to create offices in all sorts of cities and places that he hadn't necessarily had before, because as part of this, he is not planning on you from working from home all the time. At some level, he plans to have, you know, bring employees as a community together. And so there are going to be additional costs to this, too. Uh, there's also a lot of complexity, tax complexity, uh, to pulling this off because you're going to be having employees potentially in every state in America. Right. And, and the uh, the cybersecurity involved also has to be there if you have all these remote, particularly engineers uh, working all over the country. Andrew, um, thanks so much for, for calling in. We appreciate it. And we look forward to the Thank interview you. It's a privilege always. Uh, with uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg tomorrow. Squawk Box starting at 6 a.m. Coming up, should you get your head out of the clouds and buy Salesforce? We'll dig into what options markets are predicting ahead of tomorrow's earnings report. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. Salesforce finishing higher today. The stock has made a big recovery from lows of the year. The digital giant reports earnings tomorrow. Options traders are betting the stock will kick into high gear. Mike has got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So today we saw calls outpace puts by about two to one in Salesforce. And the options market right now is implying a move of about 4.8%. That's in line with the 4% or so that the stock has moved on average over the last eight quarters. And the most active options were the weekly 180 strike calls. Buyers of those are betting that the stock is going to be above that 180 strike price by a couple of bucks. So that would be suggesting that they believe that the four and a half to five percent move that the stock is implying will be to the upside. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time coming up. Final trades. Big night to come in your way on CNBC. Elon Musk and Jay Leno kick the tires on the new Tesla Cybertruck. Be sure to catch an all-new Jay Leno's Garage. That's tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern on CNBC. Final trade time. Karen Feinerman, we kick it off with you. Yes, I want to say congrats to my daughter, Lucy, who graduates from college tomorrow. And I remember the day she was born. Next thing I know, I'm on a Zoom call tomorrow with pomp and circumstance in the background. And my final trade, short TLT. Go, Lucy. Congratulations. Steve Grasso. This one's been great to me. Trinseo, it's actually breaking out. It's up big in the last week or so. T-S-E, ticker symbol, by Trinseo. Tim Seymour. 
Nike at $100. I think he takes some profits. This is where we had eyes well before COVID-19, 36 times trailing, and we don't know the future. Big Nike here. Guy Dami. Way to go, Lucy, and your classmates, and Lockheed Martin. Take a look at that one, Melissa. I will. Thanks for watching Fast Money, everybody. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.